is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Today's episode brings us to Bath, where Dan Richards speaks with us about isolation, mass tourism, and creativity. We also talk about his new book, Outpost. Dan is the author of several books, including Climbing Days, The Beachwood Airship Interviews, and Holloway, which was co-written with Robert McFarlane. His new book, Outpost, was shortlisted in the Edward Stanford Travel Writing Awards. So now, here is Dan Richards. Well, Dan, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me along. So we're here to talk about your newest book, Outpost, A Journey to the Wild Ends of the Earth. So congratulations on the book and uh, for its nomination to the Edward Stanford Travel Writing Awards. Oh, well, well, thank you very much. I mean, it's always a pleasure to kind of be up for any award, I guess. I mean, if only to spend a night at the kind of award ceremony in a room full of people I, well, hopefully admire. I mean, if if I don't admire them and I've never heard of them, I think I've got a better chance of winning. But um, if if I have, you know, it's always a pleasure to kind of, you know, be in a, a room with one's peers. So that's nice. <laughs> well, good luck to you. Uh, wish you success with that. Thank you. So you've written several other books like Climbing Days and Holloway, but Outpost continues in the tradition of fusing what appears to be two of your interests, right? Travel and nature. I was wondering if you could uh, explain to us how you got here, here being um, an adventurer and also a writer. Um, I guess I took quite a circuitous route. Um, I went to university um, in the east of England, um, a place called Norfolk, and then I went back and I did an MA um, at the art school, and I ended up writing my first book about creative process, talking to a lot of creative people. Um, it was a book called The Beachwood Airship Interviews, mm-hmm. um, and that was about um, going to art school and then seeking out um, artists and craftsmen and technicians and you know actors, writers, sculptors, musicians, all of these sorts of people, and asking them how they worked. Um, <clears throat> sorry asking them how they worked, where they worked, and why they worked, really. And that had an amazing cast of people, all of whom responded to handwritten letters from me, including people like Judy Dench, the actress, and the Manic Street Preachers, the band, Mm -hmm. and Jenny Savile, the painter, and many, many sort of wonderful, wonderful people. And in light of that happening, I met Robert McFarlane and Stanley Donwood. And Stanley is the artist with Radiohead, who I've collaborated with now for about a decade. And he, I'm fortunate enough that he um, has um, illustrated and designed a few of my covers. Um, and because of that meeting through the Beachwood Airship book, um, we wrote a book called Holloway, which you mentioned, um, mm-hmm. which came out with Faber and Faber in 2013. Um, And that was really a book about landscape and the idea of time and deep time and ghosts and memory and um, really a book about friendship as well. Um, And in light of that having happened, Faber and Faber said, would I like to write another book? And I wrote Climbing Days, which was the um, sort of climbing mountaineering biography of my great, great aunt and uncle. 
Um, my great-great-uncle was I.A. Richards, who's known for his practical criticism, and um, he taught at Cambridge over here in the UK and also um, uh, Harvard, Cambridge Maths. Um, and he was a good friend um, of T.S. Eliot and people like that. Um, but he was an amazing mountaineer. And if anything, he was eclipsed by his wife, um, Dorothy Pilly, um, who was at the forefront not only of women's climbing but climbing full stop and set up the first ever um climbing club for women by women mm-hmm. uh, it's called the pinnacle club and that's still going in wales um over here so having done all that i then began thinking in fact even as i was writing the climbing book i was thinking about what the next thing might be and um to climb you know, to any height, you need to kind of um, have a foothold on the mountain and uh, in as much as to climb to a 4,000 meter mountain, let's say, you need Mm -hmm. to be halfway up before you begin your second day, mostly, unless you're a beast, unless you're one of these people (laughs) who solos up things at a fantastic rate of knots faster than I can run and such people, well, quite a lot of those people about. Um, But when I was doing the climbing book, I stayed at a number of high altitude cabins in Switzerland and France and places like that. Uh, Some of the cabins had been uh, places where my great, great aunt and uncle had stayed because um, Climbing Days itself was a climbing memoir. I realized fairly early on that I couldn't um, really write this book about these two incredibly, you know, intrepid people, people who seemed made of verbs, you know, and sinew. and I couldn't do it vicariously. I had to actually light out and um, climb in their footsteps and handholds and, you know, on their, the trail of their ropes. So I learned to climb for that book and went all across Europe um, climbing their routes. Um, and to do that, I stayed in a number of these, um, these cabins, really bothies or, um, I suppose, what would you call it, a sort of um, caboose kind of situation, halfway up um, mountains. Mm. And I began to think about these buildings that exist on the edge, not only of wildness, but also on the edge of most people's perception of both what is possible and and landscape. You know, unless you were interested in alpinism, you wouldn't... um, give a second thought to the fact that there might be these incredible places halfway up a mountain, you know, often above the snow line, above this invisible line of altitude sickness. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly you wouldn't think that there might be a guardian in that place who was, a, you know, more than happy for quite a lot of money in the case of Switzerland to cook you rosti and sausages and eggs and give you a beer when you'd been hiking up, you know, for a day's worth uh, to get there. Mm-hmm. And so I began thinking about such places and how they've changed and where they come from and the space they occupy in really the imagination of people who seek um, wild places and people who seek really solitude, I suppose, mm-hmm. because the irony that's at the heart of this outpost book is the fact that to go to places that are truly beyond the the realm and the power and the really that I suppose beyond the control of human beings, um, one often has to go to a human outpost as a springboard to those places. And that's really what set me thinking about outpost and what might be contained within it. Mm-hmm. It seems like this new book, you come full circle. Uh, not only are you talking about travel and nature landscape, but also talking, uh, you're writing about creativity, right? That's um, This book is as much about 
the kind of creative impulse about finding refuge um, and space and time to be creative in these outposts as it is about the the journey itself. Um, in, in, in your book, you wrote about outposts as cerebral clearinghouses. I was wondering if you could explain to us what you mean by this. Yeah, sure. Um, it's really the idea that outposts can exist um, in almost two senses at once. You have the outpost that is the refuge from wilderness. Mm -hmm. So it is the staging post, you know, it is the, the shelter. Um, and then you have the outpost that has been created almost to contain wilderness, to be a wild place um, so that somebody can be creative. And from the very beginning, I was interested in the idea that writers and artists, they often have studios or ateliers or just sheds, really, mm -hmm. at the bottom of their garden, uh, like Dylan Thomas with his um, boathouse at Larn, or Roald Dahl, who's um, shared his uh, little, um, what would he call it, his sort of like writing hut. I talk about that in Outpost as well. And um, one of the chapters is about this amazing artist, Simon Starling, who... Um, won the Turner Prize, a big arts prize over here in the UK with the Tate um, for this artwork, this amazing, I suppose, installation uh, called Shed Boat Shed. And that's all one word about this uh, building, this quite um, expedient sort of um, shack that he found by uh, the Rhine in Switzerland because he was going to have an exhibition in Basel. And the shed suggested a boat to him because it was a shed owned by a boat club, a Weidling boat club, which is a type of German-Swiss punt, so a flat-bottom boat, because the shed itself had an oar nailed to the front. And so he took the shed, he took the raw material of the shed, and he fashioned the most beautiful boat. Um, and then he filled the boat with the remaining bits of the shed, and he punted it down to Basel. And then in the gallery, he rebuilt the boat back into its original form of the shed. Um, and then he exhibited that. And if you look closely, uh, you can see the marks of where the shed has had this most tremendous adventure. And at the time when this was exhibited at the Tate, at Tate Britain in London, um, there was a lot of chat from the press about this was an incredibly difficult artwork. You know, it was the sort of thing that nobody, apart from the cognoscenti or people who knew a history of art, would understand. But mm. that's what the press said. But the actual reaction of the public was incredibly enthusiastic. And of course it was, because this was an artwork that really told the most wonderful childlike story of possibility. And for me, simple uh, Spartan structures have always embodied the possibility of adventure, be it the treehouse that one builds as a child, or, you know, the, the idea of dens or bivouacs or any of this sort of thing, you know. Uh, and this artwork really um, is a case of um, an intrepid shed that's been on a great adventure. And right at the beginning of the book, the Outpost book, I, I kind of juxtapose it, I suppose, with a different shed, one that my father stayed in yeah. up in Svalbard towards the North Pole exactly. when he was on an adventure just before I was born. Yeah. I have a picture of him Hotel on this California. adventure. Yeah, Hotel California. Mm. This amazing, most possibly northern shed in the world that he was up when he was on an Arctic expedition in the weeks before my birth. Mm. 
So the shed boat shed seems uh, to kind of allude to this idea of transformation and creativity, uh, literally and, and, and metaphorically. Um, but what do you think um, it is about outposts that are so conducive to creativity? I think it's the idea of creating a space to think and work that's different from the everyday. Um, going back to my pal Stanley, whenever I've been to his various studios, they've always been cold and fundamentally inhospitable. And at one point he told me that, yes, they are that way because that's the law. You know, if you have a creative space, it has to be uncomfortable and um, inhospitable because that's the, the only way you get work done. You know, I was once told the story that if you have a husky dog and you give it a fine time, you know, you take it indoors and you give it nice food and you put it before a fire, you've essentially ruined that dog. You know, it will never again pull your sled. It will never again, you know, uh, you know, be a trooper in the true sort of inhospitable wilds because it's seen the other side, it's seen the other, you know, possibility of it all. Whereas what you should have done is kept it outside your back door, you know, come, you know, rain or shine, come blizzard or, you know, whatever. And, uh, you know, at most you should have built it a small windbreak of snow so that it doesn't get, you know, blustered to death. But otherwise, that's the kind of level of, you know, creature comforts that you should afford that type of animal. And I think to some degree, artists feel the same way where they need a slightly inhospitable place to work because it focuses the mind. Um, but as much as being inhospitable and as much as being kind of quite a raw and simple space, it's, you know, the sort of space where one can have a den, the sort of space where somebody can create a habitat conducive to this kind of like incredible alchemy, which I think creative work often is, where you're creating something from nothing. You know, you need your secret lair, you need your hidden underground kind of laboratory where you do these, you know, these crazy um, experiments to, you know, create new life, essentially, in the, in the form of story, in the form of painting, in the form of sculpture uh, or photography, you know, this kind of like a slightly weird world. And I think that the cheapest and easiest way to build yourself a little studio is often to have, you know, a quite rudimentary shed, not the kind of cabin porn that you see where, you know, people who are tech millionaires build themselves a frontiersman's cabin, which has triple glazing and underfloor heating and all of this stuff. Um, you know, something that's fundamentally pretty, pretty raw to kind of get on with stuff. And later in the book, I actually went on a residency to Switzerland where I was in a very um, she-she purpose-built writer's brutalist treehouse type affair, mm -hmm. which had been absolutely calibrated for what, um, you know, apparently, you know, the architects of the world thought a writer would need to do their best work. And almost the comfort was such that it was... Um, I don't know. It, it, in many ways, it was detrimental to the process because I think people often need to be slightly uncomfortable to do their best work. Um, you know, you need to be up against it, perhaps. Um, but all these theses, I suppose, um, all these all these ideas were there to be tested. And so throughout the book, I was testing constantly the idea of what is an outpost, what is solitude, what do people need to work, why are people drawn to these places, and what, you know, can be said to be truly wild these days in a world where, you know, if you take a satellite phone, you are contactable everywhere. Right. If you, you know, where can't you go? You know, mm -hmm. and even if you can go there, should you? And all of these questions, they're kind of percolating throughout the book.
So you talk about these places, um, and the book takes you to Asia, to the U.S., North America, and to Europe. Uh, could you talk to us about precisely where the book took you, and um, kind of more meta, like how how did you decide on which outposts to visit? Um, well, in terms of where I went. Mm-hmm. I start every book with a kind of wish list of places to go. Um, One of the starting points for the book was um, a polar bear pelvis that my father brought back from this Arctic expedition that he'd been on shortly before my birth. Um, And he'd been up in a place called Neolicent, which is a, um, a closed kind of company town, if the company in question were climate scientists. Um, and there were less of them in 1982 when he went, but certainly now um, you have most, you know, large countries in the world have a team of research scientists up there. Um, I think probably even still America, even with your current administration, I think you probably still have some research scientists up there. Um, although whether their emails are still being picked up, I'm not sure. Um, and I. And so I thought, well, I want to go back there. I want to go to Svalbard and see what's become of Hotel California and, you know, this shed that my father stayed in um, and maybe see some bears, some, some mice bears, um, considering that this pelvis had lived in the house all of my childhood and really been the most amazing object and prism through which to think about, you know, the nature of wilderness and travel and the top of the world, things like that. And then I'd always wanted to go to Iceland because Iceland had you know, uh, had a really big impact on me as a kid when I discovered this place existed, you know, a place of glaciers and volcanoes, um, a land of ice and fire. Um, And I began thinking about what that might be like and what the sort of building that was um, was there at the very beginning, a sort of building that perhaps the Norse would recognize and what had become of those kind of cabins that um, enabled people to cross the interior of Iceland because the interior of Iceland is very barren. It's very cold. And to make any sort of distance, um, any sort of journey of distance on foot, you need really to join the dots of some sort of shelter. Mm-hmm. So I began thinking about that. And then Simon Starling, who I've already discussed, who, you know, the shed boat shared and the power of the imagination. And in his chapter, I talk about Roald Dahl's um, writing cabin as well. And then really I began thinking about how far I could go. And one of the chapters that I explore is the idea of traveling beyond the earth and going to Mars, uh, which is an outpost and a destination that's often been talked about by Elon Musk. And to some degree, even, you know, Trump is quite keen to get to Mars. But in that chapter, I really talk about why people are so keen to get to Mars and the sort of people who might go. I discovered that there is a research station which is quite sociological in its aims and uh, it's kind of um, a place where a lot of people who have an interest in going to Mars congregate and that's in Utah. So at that point, I thought, okay, America. And I'd always been interested in fire lookouts ever since I'd read about Jack Kerouac going. And so um, I thought I'd want to really have a look at a fire lookout where people were stationed to look out for forest fires. And initially I thought, I don't want to go to Jack Kerouac's one because that's probably the one that everyone goes to. So I set out to go to one in the Idaho panhandle that was near the home of uh, Dennis Johnson, one of my favorite American writers. Um, And as it turned out, that wasn't possible. And I did end up at Desolation Peak where uh, Kerouac was for a period in the mid fifties. 
And then I came back to Scotland and was thinking about Bothies. And Bothies are a curiously Scottish sort of UK phenomena where um, you have old buildings um, that were once used by estates for gameskeepers and people who were really tending the land who have perhaps these buildings fell into disuse and have now been repurposed as walkers huts. And I was talking to someone recently who was telling me that there is a, a strong kind of tradition and equivalence in New Zealand and they have similar kind of buildings. Mm. Um, and then I began thinking about how we could really push the idea of what an outpost is. So rather than an inward facing um, shelter, the idea of an outward facing beacon. So then I went down to France to the world's, well, one of very few, only a handful of the lighthouses that remain that are both offshore, so sea facing lighthouses that are still operational and that can still be visited by members of the public. So I went to um, Far de Cordois, which is just off the coast of Bordeaux in France. And then you've got a chapter that's about uh, this amazing um, uh, sort of writer's retreat kind of um, residency place at the Foundation Yamakowski um, in Switzerland, which has been built uh, by, um, it's really a sort of Logan's Run sci-fi style uh, situation. Uh, it's quite Blade Runner in its way. Um, and um, all of these floating um, brutalist little pods that writers are meant to sort of do their best work in. And mm -hmm. I juxtapose that with um, another writer's um, sort of pod, I suppose, in Britain, which is quite famous um, in its way. Um, a chap called Roger Deakin, who's a uh, revered nature writer and wild swimmer, who's been compared a lot to the kind of British version of um, Thomas Thoreau. So this idea of caging oneself amongst the birds and having a wild time, a wild kind of, I suppose, um, outpost near at hand, near to, a, near to one's house to write in. And then I went off to Japan to look at shrines that have survived for thousands of years. Um, up mountains just because I thought well this is a good opportunity to do that <laughs> uh, you know when in Rome go to Japan and the book really ends with going up to Svalbard you know that was the trip that the book's been building towards and uh, sort of seeing what was there um, and going back to see the bears and apologizing for my father having carted off the remains of one of their brethren <laughs> back in the 80s just before my birth and for the for the listeners uh, I think towards the end of every chapter, there is an image of these outposts that you uh, visited, uh, just to give a visual uh, reference. I'm curious, uh, being being American, uh, about your experiences out in uh, Desolation Peak, following in the footsteps of, of Kerouac. Um, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but I'm in Orlando, Florida, and just down the road, there is a, a little community called College Park. And Kerouac came to College Park to live in 1957, I believe, or 1958, just after On the Road was published. And he spent okay. maybe uh, half a year, eight months in this little um, bungalow, basically, in College Park, where he wrote the first draft of Dharma Bums. Oh. So it seems that, uh, you know, this idea of outposts is very much a uh, uh, part of the, the creative process for Kerouac. Um, but what was it that, um, that you learned about uh, Kerouac and his, his life and his creativity by 
visiting Desolation Peak, if anything? I think, I mean, I never, at least I try not to go to any of these places um, too full of preconceived notions. Mm -hmm. I think that you can kill a place by over-researching it because when you arrive, there it is. And you really need to take it on its own terms and, you know, have space in your, um, really in your mind for what it could be and what it is, as Mm -hmm. opposed to going all that way in the case of Desolation Peak, which is, you know, it's in Washington State, it's up towards the Canadian border in the Cascade Mountains, you know, so it's off the beaten track. It's in, I think the the um, the Cascades National Park is one of the, in a, I mean, by American standards, you know, which is, you know, quite a, quite high standards. It's one of the most um, isolated and wild kind of expanses of untouched wilderness, you know, in North America. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I went that way and to go all that way and just have confirmation bias, you know, to go that way and then just discover the things you've set out to find because that's all you're looking for. I always live in fear of that. So I went there very much and I, say this at the beginning of a chapter, I went there expecting in the weeks running up to the journey to go to the Idaho Panhandle. Mm-hmm. But the the cabin that I was going to there, the Firewatch cabin, um, was actually in an area that turned out to be on fire, uh, which is, you know, you could, you could perhaps suggest ironic. Um, <laughs> and perhaps they shouldn't have decommissioned that cabin so that I could stay in it. Maybe if they'd kept it going, they might have avoided that whole fire business. But um, there it is. And so I ended up going to Kerouac's place. And then um, my friend Colin and I, because I don't drive, which turns out to be quite problematic in America. I'm sure you used to have a lovely, you know, uh, quite... Uh, all-encompassing railway system, but uh, it seems to have uh, slightly uh, disappeared in the last 50 years. Um, But, you know, I'm used to traveling on trains. So luckily or unluckily, depending on who you ask, um, Colin came along with me and um, we went and exploring this Firewatch cabin of Kerouac's. And I went, having read a bit of, of, you know, his his various reports and stories about this place, but not having done too much research into the actual reality of his stay. And it turns out that Kerouac had a pretty horrible time when he was, um, he was up there as a fire lookout. He was there for 53 or 63 days, I think. And um, in that time, he got pretty crazed pretty quickly. He ran out of coffee and tobacco He ran out of tobacco first, so by day 10, he was smoking coffee grounds. Um, He really, he came face-to-face with himself properly for perhaps the first time and didn't much like what he found in that respect. You know, he went went fairly feral um, and actually had to kind of break his stay, you know, his secondment for a while to kind of go and re-kit himself um, because he'd always had this image of himself as an outdoorsman, somebody who was expedient, somebody who was practical, somebody who could, you know, um, handle himself in wilderness. And when you consider that the fire lookout in question is fairly cozy, you know, you would have had a little potbelly stove in there. Um, All you have to do is just be on your own, you know, tend the stove and radio in if you see any smoke from possible fires. But, um, you know, there's a lot of free time 
the poet Gary Schneider had a great time um, on a mountain nearby called Sourdough Mountain and actually, you know, was really quite enthusiastic when Kerouac was keen to go and said to him, you know, it affords you a lot of time, but also you really do come face to face with yourself. And I think in retrospect, Kerouac didn't hear the second part of that sentence mm. and just thought, oh, great, free time. I could use that. That would be great. You know, and also a paid, a paid secondment. You know, I could, you know, earn money for writing. And bear in mind that at this point, On the Road had not been published. Um, he'd had one, I think, novel published that had done absolutely nothing. He really couldn't get arrested at this point. And so here he is on top of a mountain. And it's this great chance that he has to really get stuff done. And he kind of cracks up. And then to go so many years later, as I did, and meet Jim Henterley, who's the current watchman, because um, Desolation Peak Lookout is still uh, you know, commissioned. It still uh, has a man in it. Um, and Jim is a wonderful guy. He's a great reader. He's a great artist. He's also a sort of Vietnam vet and, you know, various things. Well, actually, I think he was in the 101st Airborne, but he is just young enough that when he joined, they just returned from Vietnam and they didn't go back. But he, um, you know, he is he's jumped out of a lot of planes with parachutes and he's uh, uh, worked as a medic in various kind of combat situations. So, you know, he's a good guy to have on top of a mountain mm -hmm. if you arrived fairly knackered from having spent, you know, several days trying to get there, um, having, you know, driven all the way up the Skagit River and up over the Ross Dams and then got a boat up Ross Lake and then hiked up a mountain, um, you know, as we did, as Colin and I did, and then onto this mountain that's, you know, home to bears and also home to cougars and various deer and, you know, and uh, what are, sort of marmot type things. They look like little kind of beaverish fellows who are up there. I mean, it's got all sorts of wildlife. Wildlife is crazy. And then you get there and then you meet this guy and it was the most amazing thing. But in terms of, you know, juxtaposing my trip with Kerouac's trip, I think it's fair to say that I had a nicer time than he did. Mm. It seems like the, well, he broke himself. <laughs> I was going to say it broke him, but, uh, you know, you travel with yourself and, well. I think he met himself. I think he, I think he met himself coming back the other way. And it was a kind of strange situation for him because I think one of the reasons he was always traveling, always on the road is that in a way he was kind of running towards something and running away from something. And actually to stay still for a moment, you have to take stock. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really where he kind of came unstuck. Many of the places that you write about are fairly remote. And I was wondering if um, what your thoughts are on kind of over tourism, if, uh, if the special nature of some of these places are threatened by the rise in tourism. Do you see people making the adventure out to visit these places increase? Do you, do you think that's going to threaten the, uh, the quality of these places or what, what is your take on that? I think inevitably, the more people who go, the more um, stressed the place they go will be. I think that's just a, a fact. And f physically, um, but um, what about in, in kind of spiritually, for, for lack of a better word, uh, the, the idea of the place? Um, well, I think, you know, there is a question of whether you can have a wild place, depending on, you know, what one's own definition of that is. If it has, for example, queues of people coming off it because, you know, it's in demand to such a degree. I have a view where, whereby 
destination tourism is fundamentally damaging to both the idea of tourism and also at the end of it, the, the destination. Mm-hmm. Um, my view of a journey is that the journey begins from the moment you leave your front door and that every element of that journey needs to be considered and not only the quality of your experience as a traveler, but also the quality of your kind of experience in terms of uh, doing least harm and leaving least trace needs to be considered as well. Um, As I said earlier, I'm a great fan of traveling on trains. Um, About a decade ago, I went from New York down to Washington and then Chicago and then over the top through Montana um, in the middle of winter to Seattle on the train, the Amtrak, which was incredibly good value for money. And I saw a lot of America and I saw the landscape change and I went through a vast swathe of the country. You know, I went from coast to coast and I went through that middle bit as well that doesn't agree with either. And um, I kind of had the experience of seeing a country and talking to quite a lot of people en route. And it was a lovely experience to have because I actually got to engage with the place. And if you're taking flights across somewhere for ease of time, you know, you're going from your front door and then you're catching connections out to a shopping mall with an airport, you know, with a runway. Um, (laughs) And then you're getting on a fairly sort of like stressful sardine tin with wings. And then you're going up, you know, at a time when, you know, perhaps the middle of the night because you want to get a red eye or whatever. And, you know, so you don't see where you're going. You don't see the landscape change. It's Mm -hmm. stressful. There's too many people on your flight. Um, You land, you have to get more transfers. And yes, you get to wherever you're going reasonably fast. But wouldn't it be nicer, as is happening so much more in Europe, to get a sleeper train whereby, you know, you leave from the middle of a city, you get on a train, you get into bed on the train, you wake up in the morning having traveled a distance and you have the option of looking out your window and seeing the world go past. And then um, you get your transfers the next day, having had breakfast on your train and you are able to kind of like get a very large distance if you have a decent railway system. And suddenly you're actually engaging with the earth, you're engaging with the world, you're not, you know, your carbon footprint is not as large as it would be if you were getting a flight, you're doing less harm, and you're traveling at a speed that a human being can understand. That to me, which isn't, and this isn't to go, you know, off on a tangent from your question, mm-hmm. that to me is all part of the same issue with why are you going, where are you going, and what are you doing, you know? If you want to go to Mount Everest, ask yourself why. If you want to go to, you know, the Grand Canyon, ask yourself why you need to go to that bit that everyone goes to. You know, there are more than enough Instagram pictures of that particular bit of the Grand Canyon. There are more than enough Instagram pictures of that helicopter trip above the Grand Canyon. 20 miles down the road, it's still the Grand Canyon. And you could go and see a bit of it that's less explored, but no less beautiful. Why go and do this destination tourism thing where you're essentially adding your pin at the point on the map where everyone adds their pin? I'm not saying go off and despoil somewhere that's unspoiled. I'm saying think about it and don't just for the ease of your holiday or the ease of the fact you're having a weekend somewhere and you're going to Vegas. Why not do the Hoover Hoover Dam and the Grand Canyon in the same weekend? Why not juice the place? I'm saying that's the problem. Don't juice the place. Do one thing well. 
don't try and go and kind of like collect the full set of experiences because, you know, I'm currently in Bath in the Southwest, which is, you know, a beautiful Georgian town. It's got a lot of Roman stuff around, you know, down the road relatively is uh, Stonehenge, Mm -hmm. which is another wonderful ancient monument. And there's Salisbury Cathedral, which is a lovely thing. But, you know, we get coach loads of tourists here who are in Bath for a good couple of hours. And then they're on the coach for another hour. And then they're seeing Stonehenge for a good half an hour. And then they go to Salisbury and look around that for a good 10 minutes. And then they get on the coach again and they go to London and then they fly home the next day. And perhaps that's a slight exaggeration, but the quality of that experience compared to somebody who decided to stay in Bath, say, for three days and walk around and talk to people, is not the same experience that you're having. Mm -hmm. You don't have to go to these specific places at a huge speed. Slow down, essentially. That's my message. Slow down. Decide what you want to do, you really want to do, and just do that one thing. Because otherwise, you're just going to spend most of your time traveling. Mm -hmm. And if you are going somewhere far away, factor in the travel. Have a nice time. You know, don't do what everyone else is doing because then you'll just get what everyone else has got. Try, for God's sake, to be an individual, you know, even Mm -hmm. when you're, you know, because otherwise what you end up doing is, you know, digging the rut a little deeper, You know, you end up being this photo fit tourist and losing the childlike wonder, which probably drove you to that thing in the first place, because the childlike wonder is about the uniqueness. And it's about often the idea of um, sort of like digging down and, you know, unpacking the story. And why is it that when we get older, we insist on going faster? I think speed is detrimental more often than not. Mm -hmm. So this question of, you know, why and how one goes. Just to go back to the beginning with my book about creative process, I was asking people how they work, why they work, and where they work. And now I think I'm writing the same kind of book. I'm just saying, how do we go? Why are we going? And where are we going? You know, and how can we do it all in a way that is, you know, most beneficial and nourishing, not just for ourselves, Um, you know, this most destructive of animals, but how is it, you know, beneficial and nourishing for the place itself? How can we make it work? Um, You know, how can we do it in such a way that our ancestors, you know, our children, our children's children can have the possibility of going as well? Because in going fast and in going in, you know, hard and with a huge sense of entitlement now, we are possibly, you know, taking away the possibilities, we're possibly, you know, denying future generations the opportunity to experience the wonders that perhaps we're passing over for need for speed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very well said. Uh, And there's a lot there we could talk about and unpack. Uh, One of the things that jumps to my mind is when you speak about this idea of prepackaged mass tourism and failing to be individuals, uh, I was thinking about this in the context of not just traveling, but writing about traveling. Um, and I was wondering, is mass tourism and prepackaged tourism impacting travel writing? I don't know, to be honest. I mean, only in as much as I can imagine that mass tourism and prepackaged tourism, there's a brilliant essay that I love by David Foster Wallace called Consider the Lobster. 
about the Maine Lobster Festival, where he actually looks at it perhaps like an alien would look at it if it had just landed, like what the hell is going on here? You know, these <laughs> thousands of lobsters being boiled alive for people who kind of like eat them in such a kind of, you know, consuming way that you're not even sure the people are actually enjoying them. It's just something that they do, mm. um, you know, and, and what is the quality of experience here? And, and, you know, it's a whole festival taking place without apparently any kind of thought for how the lobster feels in terms of this um, and the history of that kind of relationship and the overfishing and various other things, which is to say, Mass tourism to me is almost like a, it could be you could write a science paper about it, you know, the sociology of it, the kind of the mass mania of it. Mm -hmm. But most travel writing that I love and in fact, the travel writing that I consider, you know, the most engaging is the one that tells me about something I don't know about. You know, right. it's the thing that actually doesn't necessarily explore somewhere I've never heard of. It doesn't, you don't have to go into the middle of, you know, the Borneo rainforest or something like that. It could be somewhere quite close at hand, but it engages me with its stories that take a new perspective, a new slant. Um, perhaps it revisits something, but looks at it through a different prism. Now, the problem with mass tourism is that inevitably it's telling everybody to look through the same you know, the same aperture. Mm -hmm. And often that's the side of a bus or it can be, you know, stand here and look at this. And I have no problem with stand here and look at this if you're in the middle of Iceland and to go off the path would be to damage, you know, millennia old ecosystems and things like that. But what I would say is that if you're saying stand here and look at this and you're in a built up area and you're with 30, 40 other people all looking at the same thing and you're kind of like packaged together, you know, like, a bit of a sort of, um, you know, like animals being herded from one place to another. The quality of that experience is not as good as actually rambling around and being able to take decisions. Mm -hmm. So I think implicit and also intrinsic to my view of what constitutes interesting travel writing is a sense of autonomy and a, a kind of, well, right at the heart of it, it really pivots on the idea of a unique original gaze and standpoint. It's very difficult to have a unique standpoint if there are 40, 50, 100 people standing next to you because you've been told to stand there. Um, so in a way, I don't think mass tourism actually affects anything that I'm talking about because the sort of people that I like as writers would always find their unique angle and their unique perspective and their unique vantage point. But the trouble is that mass tourism is diminishing the um, ability of the world to sustain unique vantage points because, you know, as soon as you have a unique vantage point and it goes on Instagram, for example, people want to go there. Right. Um, and, and, and they're so, uh, you know, able to travel now. You're able to get flights all over the world. You're able pretty much to get places, you know, if you throw money at a situation you can pretty much get anywhere. One of the reasons that I was so pleased with the final chapter of the book, in a way, in retrospect, is that I wasn't able to go everywhere, that there was an element of protection. There was an element of safeguarding because in some situations, and I'm afraid tourism is turning into one, the human, you know, animal is behaving a bit like a virus. You know, we're going and we're consuming and we're despoiling and then we're moving on you know, right. or like locusts say. And to safeguard the future, we have to be very, um, you know, 
you have to have quite, we have to be quite disciplined with ourselves now. Um, and people won't like that because it might involve saying no, but there are reasons to say no to things. The availability and over availability of things fundamentally diminishes to go back to your previous question, the actual spirituality, the uniqueness, the unique magic of certain places because they're too available. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? does absolutely it makes a lot of sense i was thinking about uh, not mass necessarily tourism how that impacts writing but how mass writing impacts tourism in some ways with the rise of, of blogging and um, well instagram as a way to document one's experiences um, mm. you know there's uh, 20 different people online saying the same sorts of things about one place yeah so these things i think uh, are feeding into each other in this a vicious cycle. Absolutely. And it's also, I think, feeding into this kind of, um, you know, everything is becoming, well, a kind of monoculture in a way. Mm -hmm. I've, I've heard stories of people who set up, you know, Instagram accounts and travel Instagram accounts and discovered fairly early on that to get the hits, you have to go to the places that everyone goes to. You have to have the same shots that people recognize. Otherwise, you actually don't get the flow to your account. So this idea of the monoculture, this idea of the homogenization of experience it's actually quite damaging and rather than opening people's eyes to the possibilities of place and the difference and the culture you're actually narrowing down and really sort of like channeling to the sense in the sense of sort of like piping people sort of like sort of sluicing them towards a kind of like almost predetermined outcome and predetermined response Right. And where is the sense of discovery in that? Surely it's just playing into this idea that social media is just a really sort of like quite um, selfish sort of gloat fest a lot of the time. You know, m people who talk about gloat book and they talk about sort of like meter and things like that. You know, you're actually um, feeding in often to this sense of the individual and the sense of the entitlement and the sense of the availability of things. And the sense also of really the um, the shallowness of some of these experiences that other people may find incredibly deep and important. The fact that, you know, this bucket list kind of ethos, there somewhere is to be there, there to be ticked off. And it's not, you know, these are, these are the, you know, ancient burial grounds of X, Y, and Z. This is the land of people who are still around. But suddenly it's become, you know, the, the desirable thing to do to go along and kind of like have your picture taken on this spot. It kind of, again, it goes back to this idea of rinsing, of juicing, of, of almost having the being entitled to go anywhere and, you know, scribble in social media terms, I was here. You know, right. um, and in the book, I'm kind of talking about the kind of quality of experience and how one by often unpinning oneself from not just social media, but also the map, you know, the the digital map of you are here by giving oneself free reign to almost be lost to, you know, um, to come face to face with yourself. Um, you know, Rebecca Solnit is wonderful at this, at mm -hmm. writing about the wonderful freeing possibilities of not knowing, of just walking, of, um, you know, of being free to choose, of being free to kind of like go off on tangents and, um, you know, to perhaps put yourself in some sort of peril 
you know quite controlled peril hopefully you know eventually you will hit a hit a road or hit a hit a uh, you know habitation or somewhere but this idea of having predetermined outcomes is detrimental to the free possibility of travel i think and that to me the idea of having autonomy the idea of not going with um predetermined outcomes already fixed in your head, not going to sort of like have an experience that's been predetermined in some way. Um, as I was saying earlier, and I don't know if I remember the phrase, but uh, to go in and just have things that are uh, kind of con- confirmation bias. I think Instagram and Twitter and so many other things, they're vehicles towards confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. They're trying to sell you something. Package tourism, you know, the clues in the name, it's a package. You are packaged. You are kind of jacketed within this kind of um, quite homogenous experience to break out of that and actually seek some sort of wildness, if not in the landscape, then perhaps in yourself, can surely only be a good thing and only be good for the soul. Mm. Very well said. Uh, I know we're getting uh, close to time here, and I was um, hoping that uh, perhaps you would uh, be so kind to to read an excerpt out of out of your book, perhaps one um, as as we talked about earlier uh, about Desolation Peak and and Kerouac. Okay, sure. Okay, so this bit is about Kerouac's experience of being on top of Desolation Peak in his kind of um, his his eerie. By the tenth day of his stay in the Desolation Eyrie, he'd run out of tobacco and was smoking coffee grounds. By the end of his tour, he had rooted out and read every single piece of mouse-chewed paper in the attic of the lookout, invented several imaginary friends, and begun playing an incredibly competitive poker tournament with them. Where Schneider and Whalen had been the big eyes and the big ears, opened out, looking, listening, meditating, Kerouac struggled to live in the moment and felt strangely strained and afraid. Here's a quote. In the middle of the night, I woke up suddenly, and my hair was standing on end. I saw a huge black shadow in my window. Then I saw it had a star above it, and realized that it was Mount Hosamine at 8,080 feet, looking in at my window from miles away near Canada. And I got up from the forlorn bunk with the mice scattering underneath, and went outside and gasped to see the black mountain shapes gianting all around. And not only that, but the billowing curtains of the northern lights shifting behind the clouds. And it was all a little too much for a city boy. The fear that the abominable snowman might be breathing behind me in the dark sent me back to my bed where I buried my head in my sleeping bag. And this is played for laughs, of course, but the mystic loner is a central figure and theme in almost all of Kerouac's books. The Zen bebop man-cub hobo exploring the great beyond. But the hermit's joy that he later hymned wasn't his experience on desolation, at least not very often. He had flashes of it, but his notebooks and letters of the time make plain that he suffered, pined and gnawed his way through the 63 days in a way reminiscent of one of Dennis Johnson's addicts attempting cold turkey, fumbling at the monastic, striving for the ascetic, trying to remake himself closer to heaven, but writing a lot albeit crazed and haunted by the void. In Fire Season, the author Philip Connors lists the enduring qualifications and qualities needed to be a wilderness lookout based on his own experience and the writings and reminiscences of, quote, Jack Kerouac, Gary Schneider, Edward Abbey, 
and Norman McLean. One, not blind, deaf or mute, must be able to see fires, hear the radio, respond when called. Two, capability for extreme patience while waiting for smokes. Three, one good arm to cut wood. Four, two good legs for hiking to a remote post. Five, ability to keep oneself amused. Six, tolerance for living in close proximity to rodents. Seven, a touch of pyromania, though only in the non-participatory variety. And that sets the bar quite low, I think. But Jack Kerouac's name tops Connor's roll call, you'll notice. Kerouac, the firewatch poster boy, who ticks only about half of that list. Kerouac, who, in Connor's words, mined Desolation for two novels, The Derma Bums and Desolation Angels. But I don't think he ever really let it go. He reworked the experience repeatedly in retrospect, trying to make it right, anxious to retrofit resolution and significance. I imagine him there, sat up at night, sadly bemused that he wasn't enjoying his post, that he seemed so temperamentally unsuited to his task, this pillar saint position he felt he ought to be owning, gazing over the dark gulf at the horned shadow of Hosamine, rubbing his eyes, refocusing on his own face and the black mirrors of the glass all around him, very much alone on his mountain top, his cross, less sage than martyr, a still night and cold, hard cold, stars unknown, the radio is silent, no fire or light for miles but his own, the pot-belly stove all purr and tick, he's wrapped up, hunched over his desk, pencil scratching, mice skittering, bugs tapping at the lamp, cigarette smoke pooling in the green cabin eaves, the cigarettes he'd radioed a plea for two weeks in, hangdog and sheepish, talking to himself as he walked down the trail past all the trees and plants he could not name, a couple of hours back to the lake where the Ross Dam ranger boat was waiting with coffee and cigarettes, company and conversation. They took him round the lake with them, a night back on the float, a ham steak dinner, and then they dropped him back to the trailhead, a one-pound tin of Prince Albert tobacco under his arm, feeling better, but also like he'd failed, been humoured. Back up to the summit, city boy. Couldn't do without smokes. Couldn't do on his own. he dreamt of this for years, and he was screwing it up. No liquor. No drugs, as he later wrote. No chance of faking it. But face to face with old hateful Dolois me. Thank you for that. It's okay. It kind of cuts to the heart of uh, what you were mentioning uh, earlier about Kerouac encountering himself. In, in the quiet yeah. of the night. I think so. I mean, there are fewer harsh judges than I think, you know, oneself when it's all kind of going wrong and you catch sight of yourself in the mirror and you look at yourself and you think, come on, mm. this is it. Let's go, you know, get on with it or stop or something, you know, because mm. you see yourself. And I think every time one looks in a mirror, there's a sense, there's a slight free song of shock that this is who you are. You know, this is what the world sees. And I think when you're up against it, when you're on your own, 
in the way that so much sci-fi is, you know, the further one gets away from the earth, the more it becomes about, you know, the void of space. It actually gets very, very personal. It's about the individual. Mm-hmm. And I think to be an outlier, to travel far away from the main, you know, the main city, the main place where the people are, the main place where your loved ones are, is really to encounter oneself. And perhaps that's the irony at the part at the heart of the Outpost book is that, you know, you travel far away from everybody that you know, and then you discover yourself. And, you know, obviously you were there the whole time, but you have to almost get this distance away to kind of encounter yourself, and you have to put yourself through it in order to properly see yourself as other people perhaps see you. And, you know, that was, if I thought about it and actually unpacked it properly, I probably could have told you that was going to happen. But... In all honesty, I didn't, and it came as a shock, and it was it was good in a way. I always like to be surprised by my own books, mm. and often I find myself through them one way or the other. Mm. Well, with your book Outpost coming uh, out in paperback soon, um, it's it's good news certainly. Uh, but what what else do you have on 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 your plate? What what what's next for you? Um, I've been spending a bit of time working with the estate of Tuve Janssen, who wrote the Moomin books. Um, mm. And so I'm working a bit with them. I've just been commissioned to write an introduction to a little book of um, Tuve's uh, essays about her island, where she wrote uh, quite a lot of her work, um, uh, including the summer book, uh, which is a wonderful novel um, that she did, I think, in the 60s. So I'm writing, I'm writing that, and I write a little bit for the Guardian newspaper and the Economist. So mm-hmm. I've just done an article about night trains for them. Um, in terms of books, we're kind of by we, I suppose I mean me, sort of waiting to see what happens next. I mm-hmm. think the next one might be about night work, the idea of the things that go on when most of us are asleep to make the world ready for our waking. Interesting. Um, yeah, the idea that perhaps you know the the idea that the faraway is close at hand. And the eerie is close at hand, and all it needs to do is go dark for the world to be fundamentally changed and mysterious again. So with that in mind, that's what the next one might be. Well, very good. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Can you let us know where we can find you online? Okay, well, I'm on Twitter at DanZep, which is D-A-N underscore Z-E-P. That's me. Um, And I'm on Instagram with the same moniker. So D-A-N underscore Z-E-P. You can find me. But if you Google Dan Richards, there aren't that many of us. There's a guy who writes kind of children's books and uh, he's American and that's not me. I'm the other one. (laughs) Very good. Well, we'll be uh, looking at your Instagram, making sure that you're not posting the same picture as everyone else's. (laughs) Well, thank you. Yeah, keep me on my toes. Absolutely. Hold me to account. (laughs) Very good. Thank you so much for coming on and good luck to you. Great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash travel writing world. Thanks for your support.